Good morning. For uh, scripture reading, I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Our text this morning is Mark 10. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 30. If we're honest, the Ten Commandments um, always is, uh, it always confronts us. As we read through that, we realize our brokenness. We realize our inability to keep God's law fully. This morning, we see the story of a man who says about the Ten Commandments, I have kept these from my youth. But Jesus says to him, it's not enough. What is important to you? What makes you sacrifice yourself? What makes you happy? Why do you get up every morning? And if you had to give up everything about your life except one thing, what would that one thing be? 
When push comes to shove, what is truly important to you? Ultimately, what would you die for? What would you die for? If we're honest, the answers to these questions have, has a way of exposing our idols. It has a way of exposing the things that we place in front of God. Our text today asks us to consider what are we putting our ultimate trust in? What is it that in the end of things do we finally trust? Is it our ability to do good? Is it our ability to be successful? It is, is it our health? Is it our beauty? Is it our significance? It could, in fact, be good things. It could be any good thing. But if it is not ultimately God, with whom our final trust and our final allegiance is born, it will, in the end, let us down. Our text is a story of a young man who hears this directly from our Savior. And I'll read it this time. Uh, Mark 10, uh, verses 17 through 31. And this is reading from the English Standard Version. This is God's Word. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man... It is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one 
who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Shall we pray? Father, we ask that as we consider this text of Scripture that you would open our hearts and our minds to be taught by you. We pray this through Christ. This morning we want to uh, walk down through this text. There's, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of quotes in there. There's a lot of information and a lot of different things that we want to look at. So we want to walk through the text and look at it, and then I have two main points. The first thing that we need to consider is, is that this, this text is a sequential argument. And we can get in trouble if we go in here and if we take out quotes without context, or if we, follow, uh, if we don't follow the sequence of the argument. So you could easily say from this text that everyone should sell all they have and give to the poor, because Jesus said that. Um, You could also say that there's going to be very few rich people in heaven because Jesus said it's going to be very difficult for wealthy people to be in heaven. But both of those arguments ignore the full scope of our passage. And so we we must take the entire argument and see what Jesus is trying to teach us. The first thing we notice is that we're moving again. Um, Again, if you look through, uh, if your Bible has headings, you'll find under each heading is normally an action verb. Jesus is moving. He left here. He went there. And again, that's kind of the nature of Mark. Uh, Jesus is always moving. The first question I think we should ask of this text is, why did this rich young ruler come to Jesus? Why did he come to Jesus? Now, if we consider this man... I think we would have called him an upstanding man. We would have thought he was successful in our community. He was a good guy. He was successful in business. He was moral in that he kept the law. Why is this rich man coming to Jesus and saying, how do I gain eternal life? And I think we take the text at face value. Unlike the other scribes and Pharisees, this man wasn't coming to Jesus to trap him. He wasn't coming to bring him down. He wasn't coming to try to get him to say something that could get him killed. I think he was coming with an honest question. And we see that Jesus responded to him in love. He loved him. One commentator said, Jesus saw great possibility in a man who was concerned to keep the law and to have eternal life. This man was concerned about pleasing God. He was concerned about his future. He understood that pleasing God and doing what was right in God's eyes is what brought one eternal life. And so I think his question was from an honest heart. 
I think as well, his, his declaration of these I have kept from a youth is from an honest heart as well. I don't think he's trying to trick Jesus into telling him something he wants to hear. He was really describing how he truly felt. But it seems that this young man still had a bit of a nagging conscience. That, that maybe what he was doing was not enough. That as much as he saw himself as perfect, as much as he saw himself as a law keeper, that somehow it wasn't going to be enough. And he, he wanted confirmation, confirmation from a teacher, a well-known teacher, that, that it was going to be enough. You see, this is the nature of seeing law-keeping as the means of earning a good standing with God. We have a phrase for this. We call it legalism. Seeking to please God by law-keeping. Seeking to earn God's favor by law-keeping. Now this young man grew up in a setting that surrounded him with the religion of legalism. And today when we hear that word, it, it seems kind of harsh and aggressive. And it's often used to badger anyone who would require a particular action. You know, so you're going to have to tell me that I have to do something, then you're just a legalist. If you're going to require me to live a certain way, then you're just a legalist. But in this context, legalism was the rule. And the leaders of the Jews were very adept at law-keeping. Legalism, at its basic form, is trust in law. Here are the things to do. Do them, and God will smile upon you. God will accept you. Jesus says that's not enough. One of the primary faults of legalism is that it creates a false sense of security and a blindness to the reality of one's own heart. Because you see, when, when I get to make the checklist, and then when I get to judge if I meet the checklist, then I think I'll get in a pretty good habit of having a high respect of my ability to be satisfactory. You see, if I get to make the rules, and I get to decide if I'm following the rules, I'm going to be pretty good at making the rules. And I'm going to be pretty good at thinking highly of myself. And so I don't think it's dishonest to say that the rich young ruler came to Jesus with an inflated sense of his own righteousness. These, these I've kept from my youth. And again, I think he's honest. I don't, I don't think he's telling Jesus what he wants him to hear. I think he's being honest. He's saying, I have attempted to the best of my ability to follow the law. But that's the problem. You see, legalism ultimately insulates us from the true purpose of the law. Instead of reminding us of our inability and of our desperate need for Christ, it becomes a resume for entry into heaven. 
And so he's seeking eternal life. And he's seeking to say, I've done all these things, is it enough? Is my resume good enough? And again, as that commentator said, Jesus sees a man who seeks eternal life and seeks to be obedient, and he loves him. But he says one thing you lack. There's another word that also describes how we interact with law, and it's not necessarily in our text, but I'll speak of it just a little bit, and it's the word of antinomianism. That's a big word. It means anti-law. And, and this understanding is often a reaction to legalism. And it often comes when we see the abuse of law. And we're tempted to throw law completely away and say that grace will cover us. You see, the antinomian says, instead of, here's the rules and I'm going to follow them, he says, there are no rules. No one can tell me what to do. I will set my own course and God will give me grace in my failure. The primary fault of this is that it ignores the multitude instructions of Jesus and from Scripture to be a disciple, to come follow, and to obey. Antinomianism insulates us from the true purpose of grace. The true purpose of grace is not ultimate freedom, but the true purpose of grace is that from a redeemed heart, from one who has already gained eternal life, flows a life that pursues holiness and goodness and obedience. Now these two are often pictured as as polar opposites. This side is, is legalism and this side is antinomian. These people want rules, these people don't want rules. And we simply need to find the right balance in the middle of just enough rules and just enough grace and everything's going to be okay. The problem is that they're both in opposition with true discipleship, as we see here in this passage. We are to trust Christ fully. There is to be no trust in our own abilities. And we are to obey fully and sacrifice anything that replaces the love of God as the ultimate joy and purpose of our life. You see, true discipleship requires that we sacrifice both our law-keeping as well as our freedom. Jesus came not to give us law. Jesus came not to merely give us freedom. But he came to the earth to love. And he came to the earth to love those who would ultimately reject him. And so this young man walks away. He's unwilling. Because you see, his ultimate joy is not in God. His ultimate joy is in his wealth. And so Jesus immediately begins speaking to the disciples about wealth. And he says, how difficult is it, how difficult it will be for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
And then he follows that up with another question. How difficult is it to enter the kingdom? So first of all, he says, how difficult is it for the wealthy to enter the kingdom? But then he says, how difficult is it for anyone to enter the kingdom? And then we have the little riddle. That it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. And there's been much confusion over history. If this is a gate, if the word for camel is actually a mispronounced word for thread. Seriously, those are the two arguments. And I think they both miss the point. Jesus is making the point that it's difficult, in fact impossible, to enter the kingdom of heaven without God. And so the disciples are hearing all of this. So, so this wealthy man, he, it's difficult for him. And for anyone to enter is as hard as a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And there was one, then who can be saved? How can we be saved? How does this work? And Jesus responds, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. prophet Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arms. Nothing is too hard for you. And then we see Peter being Peter. Aha! Look at us! We're not wealthy. We've left everything. What does that mean for us? Us good disciples. We've done everything like you've described. We've left our people. We're not wealthy. We're good, right? Let's examine carefully Jesus' response. He says, No one who has left my sake, left for my sake, left houses, left family, left all of these things, they will receive, and he says, in this life, They'll receive houses and family and persecution. Persecution? How does that fit? I thought we were giving up everything to get everything. Persecution isn't pleasurable. And ultimately, eternal life. You see, when we join the family of God, then our house is not merely our house. Now we're part of the family of God. So by giving up ourselves, by leaving our attachments to what is ours, our tribal affinity to our family, our incessant need for home. I'm in the process of building a house and I'm getting pretty attached. This is my house. This is my home. This is nails and wood that the sweat of my body has created and it's mine. Jesus says, no, give that up. There's a bigger house 
There's a bigger family. There is persecution. Those who will follow God will be at odds with the world. There is, in the end, eternal life. There is no I give and I get. There is no I sacrifice now to gain later. I serve to be served later. Those are the moral ethics that our world is bound by. If I do this, I should receive that. Jesus says, no, that's not how the kingdom works. In the end, it's not what you've given up. It's not what you've sacrificed. It's who you serve as ultimate. Now Jesus says all these things, and then I think specifically to the disciples, he says, remember that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The rank in heaven is not the rank on earth. Those who it seems have served much, that may not have heavenly bearing. And again, that's a direct missile to the pride of the disciples and to our pride and our ability to make ourselves worthy. We want, we want to be part of the equation. We want to be able to say, I've done this, and thereby God owes me that. Again, I think that's just rooted in our beings. You may think that your faithfulness has granted you a position in heaven, but then does not that thinking betray what is most important? Is what's most important your position? In a real sense, I want to be this in heaven can be as much an idol as wealth is today. And I think that's ultimately what Jesus is trying to say. He's saying, you have to give up all. All claims of yourself being something or gaining something. It must be all. It must be everything. It must be in entirety. So what does this specifically mean for us? And I have two points. The first is that Jesus touches the one thing that separates us from God and requires us to sacrifice it. For this man, it was wealth. But what is it for you? God will not occupy second rank. Tim Keller says, if you want eternal life, if you want intimacy with God, if you want to get over that nagging sense that there's still something missing, if you can't find a way to get the stain out, then you have to change the way you relate to your gifts and your successes. You have to repent of how you've been using your good things. It's one thing to have God as boss, as an example, as a mentor. But if you want God to be your savior, then you have to replace what you're already looking to as your savior. 
End of quote. Jesus is saying, I must be the Savior. You can't trust in anything else. And that's different for all of us. Some, some are attracted to wealth. Some are attracted to power. Some are attracted to beauty. All of the things that the world says will make you important. For Jesus to be your Savior, you have to replace what you're already looking to as Savior. Now, I do want to take a little bit of a side and say that I think this text is clear. There's something particularly about wealth and our ability to be independent with it that has a particular draw on all of us. And it is a particular idol to be wary of. Second point, then, is that with God... All things are possible. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are impossible. And you may be saying to yourself, I I think I know what my idols are. I think I know the places I fall. I think I know the tracks that I can't dig myself out of. How do I do this? Jesus says, with God... All things are possible. You see, at the end of it all, we cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves from the clutches of wealth, of power, of beauty, of significance, or whatever your substitute Savior is. It's the kind and loving grace of a father who sends his son to die on our behalf, to show us the new ethic of love and of service and of sacrifice. You see, in the end of it all, if we think about it, Jesus, Jesus is the true rich young ruler, the one who didn't walk away. You see, he had the eternal riches of heaven at his disposal. He was perfect in every sense of the word perfect. But in order to show us, in order to rescue us, he came. He came. And he laid it all down. He laid down everything that could be rightfully his. And he did exactly what he asks us to do. He gave everything in its entirety. The call of the gospel is exclusive. You can't give a partial amount of yourself to Jesus. You can't say, yes, I'll be your disciple, but I, I want to keep, uh, keep my golf game. I want to keep my wealth. I want to keep my pride. I want to keep this little part. Jesus says I want it. it has to be everything. And he says that 
as one who gave everything. Let's pray. Father, this morning we recognize again that we are in much need of your work in our lives. We recognize again that on our own we are unworthy and unwilling. Father, we pray that you would speak to each of us, call us away from whatever idol that our heart has created that is in your place. Father, we know that this request brings with it significant things. Because, Father, we recognize that your way of doing this is often suffering. But, Father, as true followers of you, we wish to be faithful. And may we follow the example of Jesus in giving all. Father, search us and know us. Try our hearts. See if there's any wicked way in us. We ask that you would do this for the glory of your Son, our Savior. Amen.